Well, good evening and welcome to Socrates in the City. Did everyone have a, have a nice summer? Yeah, I can't possibly take that all in at once, but, but see me individually later, and I'd like to hear about your, uh, your individual summers. Um, I have to say, folks, we are extremely excited to kick off the fall season Those are, uh, those are just tectonic plates. It's a natural occurrence. Don't worry about it. It's just a small earthquake. Um, I think eventually somebody will go down there and ask them to stop or shoot them or something like that. But we'll soldier on. Um, it's extremely exciting to start Socrates uh, in the city this fall. I think the fall in general is an exciting time uh, in New York City unless you're a Met fan. Uh, I am wearing orange and blue in honor of the New York Mets. May they rest in peace. It's very, very sad, very sad. But, uh, but seriously, the fall is just a terribly exciting time, all kinds of things starting up. Of course, tonight uh, we are kicking things off with Dr. Alice von Hildebrandt, but I have to say that we have a lot planned uh, this fall. We don't normally plan too far in the future, but as you may uh, have heard, we have... Two weeks from tonight, uh, Dr. George Weigel is going to be uh, speaking. How many of you have heard of Dr. George Weigel? Would you raise your hands? I don't believe it. Um, it really is exciting. We've just got a, a fantastic uh, lineup. We're 100% uh, we're, we're Catholic all the way to November. And then, and then we, uh, we slide evangelical uh, just for a month, and we have... Uh, uh, a Harvard astronomer who that's not really happening, don't worry um, who is uh, Dr. Owen Gingerich and I, am, I have to say I'm just absolutely thrilled Dr. Weigel two weeks from now will be speaking um, on the subject of his book The Cube and the Cathedral some of you have heard of that book he talks about secularism in Europe and so on and so forth and it's just spectacular uh, he is, as some of you know, the biographer, the official biographer of John Paul II, who I believe was Pope. Am I getting that right, Catholic friends? Yeah, he was, that's right. He was the Pope, yes. And uh, Dr. Weigel, uh, of course, wrote the definitive, authoritative, uh, acclaimed biography of him. He won't be speaking on that subject, but uh, if you have a copy of that extraordinary book, he will sign it for you. Uh, we're very excited about that. And then, of course, as I said, we have a uh, Dr. Gingrich will be with us in November uh, speaking about God's universe. That's the subject of, of his book. Dr. Gingrich was not uh, the official biographer of any popes that I'm aware of. Uh, now, I'm just curious because every time we have an event, sort of a different demographic, can you uh, tell me, and by the way, Justin, I know any minute you're going to go down and find out about the pneumatic drill. You are. I know you are. He's good. That's Justin Homko. He makes it happen. Um, and uh, <clears throat> if you have to do something illegal, I don't want to know about it because I'm the titular head of this organization and I can't be responsible. Um, but I am curious, since we get a different crowd every time, how many of you are here for the very first time to a Socrates in the City event? Would you raise your hands? Look at that. Unbelievable. Well, welcome to Socrates in the City, to you um, 
especially, I guess since a number of you are new to Socrates and City, I should say a word about who we are. Um, uh, I guess in a nutshell, I guess if I had to boil it down, I would say we are a UFO cult. Um, I have to say, I would, I'd love to say more. That's probably as much as I should say right now. My lawyers tell me that I, I need to be careful. Um, I, I might have to flee, uh, flee the country um, because of the tr- upcoming trial. Um, but I, I can travel at the speed of light, so it's cool. I'm going to go to Switzerland for about 30 years. and then. Um, uh, but it is necessary that I get out of the country because the feds are breathing down our necks. They don't, they don't like UFO cults, so I've discovered. Um, I think that uh, they found out about us. There was some kind of a sting operation. It was a couple of uh, enterprising young people videotaping uh, Socrates and the city staffers. Uh, saying some really awful things, embarrassing things that all went out on YouTube. One of them didn't know that Thales was a pre-Socratic, and it's just really embarrassing, and it got out there, and they put it on Fox News, and we just uh, were very embarrassed, and um, Templeton has uh, voted to cut off funding, and it's, uh, that's probably all I need to say right now, but it's been very embarrassing, and uh, you, could, you could pray for us. Um, okay, seriously, folks, Socrates in the City, no, I'm being serious, is a speaker's series, for those of you who didn't know that, we're a speaker series where we have speakers. Wow. Cracker Jack crew this evening. Um, uh, and, of course, we take our name. Socrates in the City takes its name from... <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, yes, Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living. And a number of us thought that it might not be a terrible idea for uh, Manhattanites to think a little bit more deeply about life. God and other small topics, as we like to put it, to think about the big questions of life, to think about the things that you might not talk about uh, at a cocktail party. Those are the things that are important to think about as a uh, Greek-American. Socrates is very important to me. I think he was right when he said what he said. And so uh, we started Socrates in the City really with that purpose of bringing provocative, interesting speakers. Uh, We started in October of 2000. Uh, I think the Mets were in the World Series at that time. Oh, how the mighty have fallen and fallen and fallen. It's pretty extraordinary. Um, Well, another one of the main reasons that I have to say I started Socrates, when people ask me about how you started Socrates in the city, it's simply because I thought that there are a number of writers and thinkers of whom I'm aware uh, that I am so excited about, I want to share them with people who don't know about them. Uh, If you're here tonight and you didn't know... I got the thumbs up from Justin Homko. You shut down the pneumatic drill. God bless you. He's the, he's the hero. Remind me to renew his contract. That's unbelievable. That is actually unbelievable. I don't know what he did. It's sort of spooky. I'm going to have to... I'll, I'll let you know later what he did. I hope it was legal. Was it okay? Okay. Oh, you paid him off. All right. That's fine. That's, Templeton Fund will cover that. That's not a problem. Um, they, they, it's, it's, a, it's a line item in the budget. It's, you have to bribing uh, officials and things. Um, you know, it's what you have to do. Uh, but I was going to say that part of the joy of Socrates in the City is discovering someone or a book or something and sharing that with people who don't know about it. And so sometimes you come to something like this and you're coming because you've heard, in this case, of Alice von Hildebrand. You know all about her and you want to hear her speak. Other times I know there are people here who know nothing about Dr. Alice von Hildebrand. And it's my particular joy to share uh, that with those people, to introduce New Yorkers, Manhattanites, uh, to someone new and to the work and to the thought, to the writing of someone uh, to whom they had been previously unexposed. Um, I have to say that 
It's a rare thing, but uh, I was myself completely unfamiliar with the work of uh, uh, Dr. Hildebrand, and it was as a result of, is Matthew Maloney in the building? Where did he go? Raise your hand. Don't be shy. Where is he? There he is. Uh, Somebody, um, just a few months ago, I was at a Robbie George event. Remember Robbie George? He spoke for 75 minutes, remember? Yeah. Robbie George event, and somebody said, you've got to get Dr. Alice von Hildebrand, and I just did some research, and I thought, by gum, this is an excellent suggestion. People make a lot of suggestions, normally not that good, I just want you to know. And so it really thrilled me to begin to read and to become familiar with Dr. von Hildebrand and to realize that this is just a wonderful Socrates speaker. So I'm particularly excited. I spent the summer, or the summer, I spent a week this summer reading her book, the biography of her late husband, Dietrich von Hildebrand. And it was just one of the, it's, you've had this experience when you're reading a book and it's upsetting that you can count the pages that it's going to end soon. You know that feeling because you don't want it to end. It was that kind of a book. It was, it was a delight. When you um, become familiar with Dr. Alice von Hildebrand, you, um, it's sort of like the Clinton thing. You get two for one, except not like that. She's going she's gonna to walk out. Now, don't walk out. But what's interesting is it opened up the world of Dietrich von Hildebrand to me. And I have to say that this is one of the things I have to look forward to, is becoming more familiar with the work of Dietrich von Hildebrand. In case you don't know who that is, he was perhaps uh, the most important Catholic philosopher and theologian of the 20th century. That's a, that's a hundred year period, if you didn't know that. That's uh, an amazing thing. And so uh, we're going to hear a little bit about that tonight. Part of um, what makes tonight possible is the Dietrich von Hildebrandt Legacy Project. There's some things on your, on your seats. Uh, maybe Dr. von Hildebrandt can tell you about it. But um, there's, there's a letter from um, Pope Benedict also that you should have had, and you can read about that. But it's an extraordinary project to make the work of Dietrich von Hildebrandt more known. A lot of his uh, work, which is simply extraordinary, uh, has not been translated into English, which is uh, almost absurd. It is kind of absurd. And so that is happening now, and that's what, um, that's what the uh, Hildebrand Legacy Project uh, is about. So uh, I'm glad that you get to know about that uh, this evening. Now, some of you know that I have written a biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, so I've gotten very involved in the world of... Uh, the Third Reich and the conspiracy against Hitler and the theologians who were working then against Hitler. Very exciting. Uh, but to find out, as I said this summer, that there was someone that I didn't know about, this, this, this man named Dietrich von Hildebrandt, who was probably the leading Catholic voice against the Nazis. So it was, it, it was just part of the joy of getting to know about this wonderful hero to learn that he was uh, taking a stand against the Nazis, uh, just like my other hero, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, was. So this is just, it's very rich uh, and exciting, and the very idea that I might have um, Alice von Hildebrand, uh, uh, his, his widow here at Socrates in the City, just gives me uh, an absolute thrill, and we're really privileged to have her here. So let me tell you a little bit uh, about her. Uh, Alice von Hildebrand was born in Brussels, Belgium, which is, uh, I believe that's in Europe, is that right? It used to be in Europe, she said. That's... <laughs> See, we, we won't have that here. We can't, we can't have that. 
Um, Dr. von Hildebrand came to the United States in 1940. Uh, soon afterward, um, she met uh, her future husband, Dietrich von Hildebrand. She began philosophy studies at Fordham University as his student. Uh, later, she became his secretary and collaborated with him in the writing of a number of his books. They were married in 1959. Uh, and he was born, by the way, in 1889, which I find just extraordinary. Uh, to have a link to that, that period. In 1947, Dr. von Hildebrand began teaching at Hunter College here in New York City. She was eventually appointed professor of philosophy at Hunter and taught there for 37 years. Uh, upon her retirement, she was given a special award by Hunter in acknowledgement of her great distinction as a teacher. She is the author of numerous books, some of which uh, we have here this evening, uh, including uh, introductory, Introduction to a Philosophy of Religion, Greek Culture, not, you know, Suvlaki, Tzatziki Greek culture, but, you know, ancient Greek culture. They, they knew that. Um, by Love Refined, by Grief Refined, The Soul of a Lion, which is the biography of Dietrich von Hildebrand, which I recommend very highly. It's just a, a window into an amazing world. Uh, and then, of course, her latest book, The Privilege of Being a Woman, uh, which is available tonight. And, um, uh, well, actually, uh, tonight we're going to be hearing uh, from Dr. Hillebrand on the subject of her next book, which is not quite out yet, but will be out soon. It's called Man and Woman, a Divine uh, Invention. Uh, so Dr. Hillebrand will speak. It's the typical Socrates in the City thing, 35 or 40 minutes, uh, leaving time for Q&A. So I hope uh, you will have some questions. Now, the subject of men and women is a very important topic in our culture. Um, uh, we have, I think, rather a debased and fallen view of the sexes. It's, it's, it can be pretty depressing. You only have to watch Cougar Town or something like that to know exactly what I mean. Um, the fallen view, now we're going to hear the biblical view of the sexes from Dr. von Hildebrandt. The fallen view of the sexes is perhaps best expressed, I think, in a short poem written by Nipsey Russell, <clears throat> which was delivered which was delivered, uh, this poem was delivered from the podium at a Dean Martin roast in Las Vegas in 1975. I believe Angie Dickinson was there, red buttons uh, and what have you. And, and please. Uh, but, uh, but Nipsey Russell's poem, which I really believe encapsulates something along the lines of what I'd think of the fallen view of the sexes, is, is, is this. And, and, and I'm gonna, I'll try to, uh, to imitate Nipsey Russell, but you won't notice. Um, it is said that the Lord made woman last, a divine and wonderful plan, because he didn't want anybody talking him to death while he was making man. <laughs> right? That's the fallen view. That's Nipsey Russell's view. Those are not my words, ladies and gentlemen. But, uh, but that's, that's Nipsey Russell's uh, take on it. And um, the biblical view, as you will now hear, is something else uh, entirely. Suffice it to say, it's much more positive. I am extremely excited and honored right now to welcome Dr. Alice von Hildebrandt to the Socrates in the City podium. Please give her a round of applause and welcome her yourselves. Well, dear friends, it is lovely to address you, and I thank uh, Eric very much for his kind words. Unfortunately, unwittingly, he placed me in a very difficult situation, because 
is set your expectations so high that I'll have to, to walk on stills to satisfy you. No, at my age, walking on stills is both dangerous and extremely strenuous. <laughs> Being old, I don't enjoy doing it. And obviously, if I had a fall, it could be deadly. <laughs> no, it is certainly an honor and a privilege to address you, particularly uh, concerning or referring to my husband, to whom I, I owe my complete intellectual and artistic formation. And, uh, you know, when I met him, the first day that I met him, it was for me an overwhelming experience. Because the moment he started talking about his great book, Transformation in Christ, I knew that I had found what I had been looking for. And then he formed me completely and totally. I taught for 37 years in a secular university, and believe me, that was a challenge because obviously uh, the atmosphere was quite different from what I was used to. And what was amazing was the response of my students. It just amazed me, even though I knew subjectively that I was not performing well, that I was in no way satisfied about the way that I was doing things, but the response was so warm and so encouraging, and I realized the importance of his mission. Now, most of his works had not been translated. I read them in German, but they were unknown in America. And I was coming to the end of my life. He left a huge legacy of untranslated and unpublished works. And I saw with sadness that one very fine day I'd be gone and I could no longer continue to spread his thought. And then a young man, the son of a very, very dear friend of ours, at the age of 24, suddenly came to me and said he was going to start the Legacy Project. And the purpose of it is to translate into English this huge legacy, which I believe is extremely important. So first of all, let me express my gratitude to my young friend, John Henry Crosby, for the work that he's doing, and which he's sharing with you tonight. Now, my sister-in-law told me many years ago that it's marvelous to get old. Now, this is something which is difficult to believe in a society like ours, where being old is something that you desperately try to hide through cosmetics and dyeing your hair and the rest of it. She's perfectly right, because at the end of your life, and when you look back, the response that you have is an immense gratitude. I'm not speaking only about my faith, but I'm speaking about the people who have given me so much and certainly helped me to become the sort of person that I became. Now, I'm going to name two names. St. Augustine, who is for me the greatest thinker that ever lived, whose books have impressed and, you know, enormously. And I still believe that his confessions are just about the greatest book written after the Bible. And the second one is obviously my husband. But tonight I'm going to speak about someone that some of you might not know, but who had an enormous influence on me. I was 12, and at the age of 12, the blessing of taking a course on 17th century French literature. 
And for the first time in my life, I made the discovery of a man called Pascal. I knew very little about him, but I started reading his pensées, his thoughts. I was so overwhelmed. I was only 12 by the beauty of his style, but also by the profundity of his thought. Man is but a reed, the weakest in nature, but he's a thinking reed. Well, I started reading his pensée and I memorized 10 or 12 that were particularly dear to me. And I still recall walking around the Belgium seashore, you know, the sun was setting and reciting them to myself. Now I'm going to base my talk tonight on just one of them. He says, man is the most baffling object in nature. We are. We are extraordinarily complicated beings, extraordinarily complex beings. We are supposed to be social beings, but simultaneously we have an enormous difficulty relating to other people. Not only do we have a difficulty relating to other people, but we have a difficulty relating to ourselves. Now, in the sense that, unfortunately, there seems to be a disharmony in all of us, which makes us to be extremely unhappy and torn being. Now, I'm going to address this very complex question. In other words, the moment that you say man, you're referring to a being who has faces two enormous problems. The first, he has a body and he has a soul. Now, I don't know if you realize that this creates an extremely complex and difficult situation. It is so simple to be a chimpanzee. <laughs> you are born, you eat, you drink, you reproduce yourself, you jump from tree to tree, and that's all there is to it. And it might be a reason why some people favor radical evolution. I mean, the idea of coming from chimpanzees seems to be a very comfortable one. On the other hand, it must be marvelous to be an angel. But we are neither nor. We are not God, we are not an angel, and we are not a chimpanzee. We have a body and we have a soul. Problem number one. Now, let me make a small detour into metaphysics. The greatest abyss which creates in, exists in metaphysics is the difference between creature and creator. The creator is infinitely perfect, is all-powerful, totally transcendent, and we are creatures. All of us, angels down to a worm, all of us are creatures on the same side of the fence. But the second difference, which is, to my mind, not sufficiently enlightened, is the difference between person and non-person. There the divide is very different. On the one side you have God, you have angels, and you have human beings. And then on the other side you have all the rest of creations. Man is a person because he's made to God's image and likeness. Now, that sounds all very simple, but this person has a body. God has no body. Angels have no body. But we are persons having a body. Now, Aristotle calls man a rational animal. 
no, don't accuse me of being prejudiced. But I find that my husband's formulation is much better. Not because it was my husband, but because I find it very convincing. He calls man a person incarnated in a body. In other words, the human body is transfigured by the very fact that it is a body of a person having a soul. What does it mean? And this is of crucial importance, that every single part of the human body is to be personalized. It's not the body just of an animal. There is an abyss between an animal body and a human body. And this is why, for example, when you read the Bible, you see words such as, blessed are the feet that carry the, new, the greatness of the Lord. In Catholic liturgy, when a person is close to dying and receives the sacrament of extreme unction, what is striking is that the, the priest is going to anoint his feet, his hands, his mouth, his nose, his eyes, his head, every single part of the body. Why? Because it is the body of a person, and unfortunately, many of us resist being personalized by the soul. The human body has such an extraordinary dignity and greatness because it is the soul, the body of a human person. And meaning to say, we are not just animals, but our animality is totally transfigured. Now, all this was perfectly clear and luminous until original sin. And then came original sin, which, as you know, is, was a disaster, and we still suffered from it today and shall suffer from it to the very end of the world. Which means to say that man revolted against God. And what is interesting about original sin, when you read Genesis, is that when God said to Adam and Eve they could not eat of the fruit of a particular tree, they did not object. But the devil was infinitely clever. And he used a method which is unbelievably efficient. He did not challenge. He raised a question. Now, the great Danish philosopher Kierkegaard says, you know, it is evil to spread doubt. So the devil says, why can't you? Now, I've been thinking about it. I read Genesis innumerable times. I started when I was five, and that's a long time ago. And I still read Genesis, and every single time I discover something new that I haven't seen before. Namely, there are questions which are perfidious. There are questions which are evil questions. And I mean, this is something which happens in many universities, that you can destroy people's faith by raising questions that should not be raised because they are illegitimate. And there are questions that you only raise when you are in the wrong metaphysical position. Now, I'm going to give you something which is very simple and very vulgar. Suppose that you meet somebody, and all of a sudden you say, you know, you have an interesting thought, never crossed my mind before. 
Why can't I spit in your face? That should be sort of fun. You can raise this question only when you have lost sight of the dignity of the human person. Now, therefore, what is going to happen after original sin is, as you know, Eve yielded, and then the punishment was terrible. Man was ousted from paradise, but something that I'm going to concentrate on, because I'm very concerned about it in my new book, there was a chasm between Adam and Eve, because there's nothing that separates people more than to sin together. This creates an abyss between the sinners and explains many of the tragedies of the world in which we are living today. Now, let us go back to Genesis, which is so rich in insights. God created man. English is a beautiful language. I read someplace that it is the rich, richest language in the world. On top of it, it is an unbelievably poetic language. Even though I love my mother tongue, I think that French is a magnificent language, and I'm very happy that it is my mother tongue. As far as poetry is concerned, I think the English vocabulary is much richer. But philosophically speaking, I'm sorry to say, English is not a rich language. And those of us who try to translate from German into English are going to find it extremely difficult because the vocabulary is simply not there. No, God created man. In Latin, it is said, God created homo. There is no word for homo in English. You say man, but man can also mean male. And this creates, of course, confusion and ambiguity. He created homo, male and female. Now, once again, something which is terribly obvious that many people don't think of. In other words, he says that in order to have a homo, you need both man and woman. They belong so essentially together that in order to have the plenitude of human nature, you need both. Now, what is the obvious consequence? That two men or two women can never create a homo. In order to have homo, you need male and female. They belong metaphysically together. And this is so absolutely crucial in our society when there is a lot of confusion about this. Now, as I said, the tragedy of original sin was that man revolted against God, and then his body revolted against his soul. Now, I'm going to put it in very simple terms. What do I mean? The body is revolting against the soul. Up to that time, the body was obeying the commands of the soul. But now the body seems to resent being personalized. And I mean to say elevated to a much higher level, the level of personhood. And all of a sudden, animal tendencies started to make their own claim. You know, there is a world of difference between eating and to, to quote St. Paul to say, when you eat or drink, do it for God's glory. Or whether he becomes a sort of animal craving and satisfaction. And the very moment that you let your body take over 
and it's no longer elevated by the soul, personified by the soul, which is true of every single facet of our body's activities. You know, this is why whether you eat or drink of whatever you do, it should be and can be to God's glory. Now, the very moment that the body and the soul, the body started revolting, food, instead of being received gratefully as a gift of God, became a temptation of gluttony. Drink, once again, the beautiful symbol of drinking, once again can lead to drunkenness. Now, this is true of every single instinct. And the tragedy about the relationship between body and soul, and this is something that you and I know well, that the very moment that we yield, we also diminish our resistance. And the next time that we are defeated, it's going to be the next defeat more likely. And this can go downhill to such an extent that you develop the fearful thing called addiction. Now, am I wrong in saying that in our society, there are millions of us that are addicts? It can be food, it can be drink, it can be laziness. Maybe some of you know the great work of, of Goncharov, of Oblomov, of a good man who cannot get out of bed. He's so lazy that for him to get out of bed is a torture, and he doesn't, and he ruins his whole life. And I do not speak, of course, about the tragedy of sex, which is meant to be an expression of the love between man and woman and suddenly becomes an addiction, a craving for the sake of brutal satisfaction. This is something which has dreadful consequences in our society. Now, in other words, the relationship between body and soul is to be healed. Now, the world in which we live as marked by certain characteristics which I believe are undeniable. We live in a world in which we have a cult of the body. Now, for example, you take flyers. All of us get flyers. I get flyers from CVS. And it's 12, well, everybody does. It's not a peculiarity of mine. They just happen to hand them to you. 12 pages long. And eight of them are dedicated to cosmetics. And you are told if you get that particular product, your wrinkles are going to disappear. If you do this and that, you're going to be rejuvenated. This is a superb product to move, do, and so on. And it goes on and on. And every single week, there are new products that are incredibly expensive. And nevertheless, people go in for it and believe that they're going to, to conquer some sort of physical immortality in long forever. You know, I don't want to look young because I'm not long. Why should I look young when I'm not? It's some sort of a lie, and I'm old, and in some way to be old used to be something that was respectable. When today, of course, you say old, you know, means you say out of the way. I mean, as a matter of fact, we have every reason to worry when you are old today because you don't know what's going to happen to you. Very soon people are going to help you to, to go to a better world. You know, that is a very real danger of the society in which you exist. No, I have one simple motive. You know, don't spend half of your earnings on cosmetics. There's something called holy cosmetics. And I mean by holy cosmetics, that if you lead a spiritual life of 
dedicated to God, beauty and goodness and so forth and so on. You know, to my mind, Mother Teresa was not uh, Hollywood beauty. But I assure you that no Hollywood beauty can compete with her because of the radiance and the sweetness and the beauty that she emanated. This is something which is available for all of us and doesn't cost anything except transformation in Christ, which can only do with God's grace. Now, we live in a world which is not only totally the cult of the body, but it is a world which is basically materialistic. Having taught in a secular university for many, many years, I believe I can speak and tell you that materialism is so widespread that when you say to people, mind or spirit, they don't know what it is. Now, what is materialism? To claim or assume that basically everything is matter, and what you call mind or spirit is only an epiphenomenon. You know, Germans are much less, because they are very good sometimes at formulating stupidities. And one of them is called Mollichot. He lived in the 19th century, and he wrote a book, and the basic thesis is, I'm quoting, it's my translation, but nevertheless it's correct. <laughs> the, relationship between, the relationship between brain and mind is the very same as exists between the urine and the kidneys. No, the kidneys and the urine, pardon me. You know, biology is not my major. Therefore, identical relationship between brain and mind and between the kidneys and the urine. It's not a poetic formulation, but it's extremely clear. Everything is physical and material. I have only one small difficulty to raise, you know, because, as you all know, urine is wet. It is sort of yellowish color. It is, uh, you can measure it, you can take its weight, you can locate it. And try to do the same thing with the mind, and you're just going to fail. So let us turn rather to someone who had merciless common sense and whom I love, Chesterton. And he's going to say to us, you know, the materialist analyze the easy part. They deny the difficult part and go home to their tea. And the problem is solved. Now, obviously, it shows the nonsense of it. But nevertheless, you'll be surprised and amazed when you enter universities. And universities are marvelous when they are dedicated to truth. But apart from that, universities are responsible for most of the evils of the society. You know, evils in our society are not born at the AMP. You know, I find it so refreshing to go to the AMP because two plus two is four. And then you go to university and you find out that was old-fashioned, and today we have a new interpretation. And you see, the whole thing, one of the great temptations of intellectuals, is the passion to be original. Now, of those of you looking for a job, I'm going to give you a simple trick. Put on your curriculum vitae that you are creative. What you create is totally irrelevant. But what is important is to create, to be productive. Now comes a sad reality. If you create when it comes to ethics or metaphysics or religion and you create, you're wrong. 
and you deserve to have a full patent for your error. You see, something which is true, and this is something that I heard so often from my husband, if you say something which is true, it is not yours for the very fact that it is true. It is open to everybody. It is ours. You know, this is, in other words, truth is essentially Catholic in the sense of being universal. It's not your invention. If you make a mistake, I'll give you the full patent for it. If you say something true, it is not yours. It might come through you, but not from you. I claim that my husband's thoughts, uh, books are packed with very beautiful insights, but how often did I say to me, how often it's not coming from me, it is coming through me. I communicate it, but what I see is not my own production. So don't try to be productive in metaphysics. Don't try to be productive in ethics. Don't try to be productive in great topics. You know, if you invent machines, then you can be creative. I mean, that's your domain. You can invent a new machine as far as concerned and give you the patent for it. But I'm speaking of truth. It cannot be your production. It cannot be yours. Now, the world in which we live, unfortunately, is a world which is packed with erroneous ideas which win our attention because it is on television, because it is in the New York Times, because it is uh, in the news media, and we swallow it, and we lose our power of critical judgment. Now, therefore, we have one big problem, the problem of reconciling our body and our soul, because right now, there's an enormous tension between them, and in the society in which we live, Usually the body wins and the soul is defeated. I mentioned my beloved St. Augustine and his confessions, and I repeat, it's my deep conviction that the confessions of St. Augustine is the greatest book that ever was written. I started reading it when I was a teenager. I keep reading it, and every time I discover new magnificent insights. Now, Augustine was unbelievably talented. He had lots of trumps in his hands, but he was hooked on the sexual sphere. He lost his virginity when he was a teenager and then was living with a concubine. And by the way, let me remark that when he started to live with her, he was about 17 or so, he says that he remained faithful to her. And they lived together for many years, and then one very fine day, you know, as Monica had found a fiancé for Augustine and he could not marry her because she was of a lower class, she was sent back to Africa. And she left him, leaving him the son that they had together, and she promised that she was going to remain faithful to him. This simple woman loved him, and therefore she was not going to turn to another man. Augustine immediately looked for someone else because he could not immediately marry the girl that he was supposed to be engaged to. And so he just decided that he needed someone in between. And he was hooked. And one very fine day, you know, through the influence of the great St. Ambrose of Milan, you know, he realized more and more and more that he had to change his life. And he tells us in poignant terms, in Book 8 of the Confessions, that he could not 
He had lost his freedom. He had lost, he didn't lose his, his freedom as a human person. But he, he lost his moral freedom. He was a slave. He could not say no to his cravings. And then he did what all of us should do because it is a solution. He appealed to God. He prayed. And through God's grace, in one moment, you know, he found his liberation. He's teaching us an enormous lesson. The body is good. The body is the body of a human person. He has an enormous dignity. And this is something that we should always keep in mind in dealing with other human beings. Their body is should be a temple of God because it is, I mean, man is made to his image and likeness. But the world in which we live, there is no more sense for the fact that the body must be controlled by the soul. You know, let me mention one thing. Asceticism played a tremendous role in Christianity from the very beginning. Meaning to say to do certain things which are hard or difficult, containing your food, containing your sleep, containing your drink, containing what it can be, but controlling it. Not doing it for the sake of keeping control over your body. Be sure that your body is truly personalized. It's a world which has disappeared from our vocabulary. You know, if you read the life of one of my heroes, St. Thomas More, you know, who was a married man, was Chancellor of England, was a great, great man in England, and then, of course, lost his head, uh, was, was cut off because he refused to recognize, you know, Henry VIII as king, as king of the church. Uh, at any rate, he was wearing a hair shirt. Now, I happen to know a young girl who is very pious, and I don't know, out of a blue sky, I started to mention a hair shirt. And she said to me in amazement, what's that? She never heard about it. Now, why hair shirts? Well, they're supposed to be very unpleasant. You know, today it might be very difficult to find them. But the purpose of it is to keep the body under control so that it is truly personalized. This is something that doesn't exist today. Now, I have mentioned to you that man is a complex being. I have mentioned very briefly he's made up of body and soul, which is a difficult situation. And it's so complex and so difficult that I say it can only be a divine invention. I don't think it would ever have crossed a human mind to create a being made up of two realities that are so different. The body is visible. It has size and weight, occupies space, visible. The soul, spiritual. How can these two beings come together and create a unity? Well, God decided to do so, and he did it, because God is God. But you can admit that it is an extremely complex situation, and more complex, more difficult, is now the fact that he created homo, man, and woman. So we have a second problem. In order to have the fullness of human nature, you need man and woman together. And it was so in paradise. There was perfect harmony between husband and wife. You know, something that I love is when, you know, Eve is created. And Adam sees her. And what is his response? Enchantment. Flesh of my flesh and blood of my blood. 
is truly recognized that Noe has someone who has his own dignity. He had turned on all the animals, including the most handsome chimpanzee. All of them were simply discarded. They were not good enough. And then he's given Eve. Now, what happens? Eve, he responds with enchantment and gratitude. Now, I'm going to do something which, of course, only women dare do, to make some addition to the Bible. <laughs> you know, because, I mean, don't forget that now every woman is also a theologian, so I see no objection. And I claim, as a woman, that when Eve saw Adam, you know, they don't tell us what Eve said. I know what she said. You know what she said? She looked up to him with loving admiration for his strength, for his courage, for his objectivity, for the fact that he was chivalrous. You know, one of the great blessings of my life, and I've had many, is that two key persons in my life, my father and my husband, were vir, man, in the most beautiful sense of the term. You know, in other words, my first image of what a man should be like was one of nobility, greatness, courage, and so on and so on. And if you read The Soul of a Lion, and you see my husband's heroism in his fight against Nazism, Louis losing everything overnight, going from a mansion in Munich to slummy places, absolutely penniless. And he did it because of his love and devotion for the truth and for justice. Now, I'm convinced that Eve, when she saw Adam, perceived all this beauty and nobility in him. He truly was worthy of her, and she was worthy of him. And then comes the terrible tragedy of original sin. And as I said, the punishment was, first of all, the separation between God and man. You know, and we know definitely that unless we were given a savior, this could not be breached, it could not be healed. And this is why God sent us a savior in Jesus Christ. But there was not only a disharmony between body and soul, there was also a disharmony between Adam and Eve. They discovered that they were naked and were ashamed. This is something that we have to meditate on. Now, obviously, the way that the human body was created by God was beautiful and noble. Why were they ashamed of being naked and covered themselves? For the very plain reason that something evil had made its acquaintance and penetrated into the human body and the human soul. The pride of the soul in disobeying concupiscence in the body. And there is a world of difference whether you look at another human being as a creature of God, his son or daughter, someone that you approach with respect or dignity, or whether you approach another person as an object of pleasure and satisfaction. Now, the world in which we live is cursed because pleasure has become our God. 
And I mean, for this reason, we live in a society which is powerful, is very rich, at least at present. I don't know how long it's going to last. But in which the tragedy of the relationship between man and woman has become so dramatic that we all know the innumerable single mothers where the father is, whether he knows who the father is, we don't even know. Broken marriages, divorce, bickering and fighting between husbands. And this is something which is heartbreaking because it is so much against the magnificent plan that God had when he created Eve for Adam and gave Adam to Eve. Now, this is a tragedy of I claim that the future of the United States depends very much upon our rebuilding the family. This should be our priority number one. I mean, economics is important. Money is important. All these things are important, but they're quite secondary compared to moral fiber of our society. And this is what worries me. It worries me for the very plain reason that I see it crumbling. You know, if you only knew the number of young girls who come to me and tell me that they had an affair and was hoping to find happiness and so forth and so on, and then they were wounded and then they try another one and they try a third one. I mean, recently I read a rather poignant book of a young girl who became a Christian a few years ago called The Thrill of Being Chased. And she relates her life in details. It is difficult to read because once again you see the same tragedy of hoping to find satisfaction in the sexual sphere and every single time be bitterly disappointed until she had to acknowledge defeat and now thank God she found a way to God. But I can only tell you this is something which is absolutely dramatic and we must address and we must address it by starting with education because we all know that after Vatican II in the Catholic Church, education has been in many colleges, many universities, and many schools a disaster in the sense that all the beautiful tradition of the church have been eliminated and all of a sudden people have lost footing. And I mean, this is why we are facing a very dramatic situation. Now, what is a punishment? The punishment after original sin was a beautiful male characteristics that you still find in men, by the way. If you are lucky enough to find a real priest, a real pastor, a real man, you're going to see these characteristics are still there. Nobility, greatness, courage, chivalrous, objectivity, because men are more objective than women. Women are more taken by their feelings. No, sometimes the feeling is right and sometimes the feeling is wrong. But I mean, at any rate, what happened? All these beautiful characteristics degenerated. And degenerated tragically. You know, for example, instead of male strength, today it degenerates into brutality. You just need to watch television every day. You're going to see that some women are battered or are killed by their so-called boyfriends. The male brutality is something which is so abominable 
because it is a caricature of their noble strength, which should be at the service of other people. You take the objectivity. No, objectivity means to pass judgment on an object according to its value, to evaluate it as it properly is. Now, this is definitely a strength that men have. You know, usually you can say they're more objective than women. Well, I mean, this can develop into a sort of cold neutrality and heartlessness. You know, for example, I know men who consider that to shed tears is a sign of weakness. I could never have married a man who could not shed tears. Because, to quote Virgil, sunt la criri rerum. There are things calling for tears. There are tearful things. And if we cannot cry, then obviously there's something which is seriously missing in us. Christ cried twice. He cries when he saw Jerusalem and said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, had you known the hour of our visitation, but no one very fine that you're going to be destroyed, he cried. He cried when he knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He cried. No, even though he knew full weight, he had the power to bring him back to life. I have the tragic idea that if Judas had cried, instead of hanging himself, he could have been saved. They are blessed tears, tears of contrition, tears of gratitude, tears of love. You know, and this is one of the great contributions of my husband. I mean, I've never met another human being. There are others, but I've never met who had a deep understanding for the union that should exist between mind and heart. And this is something that you also find in my beloved Pascal when he says, the heart has its reasons that reason does not know of. There are certain things that the heart tells us that our reason does not perceive. The heart is, so to speak, the very center of a personality. It is said in the Bible, give me your heart. When you love another person and you, you get engaged, you say, I give you my heart. Suppose that I say, I said to my husband, I give you my intelligence. I don't think it would have impressed him very much. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, it's, I mean, apart from the fact that it cannot be done, but I mean, obviously, I don't think it would have pleased him particularly. At any rate, this is something that is to be healed in modern men. You know, they have the danger today is that we've become like machines. You know, I've spent a lot of time in my hospital, in the hospital. It's not very pleasant, but you learn a couple of things along the way. And one of them is that you see fewer and fewer doctors and more and more machines. You go from machine to machine to machine, and then, you know, the doctor comes in, he looks at it and gives you a... But the personal contact between physician and patient, which was so prevalent before, is something that no longer exists and exists very little. And I mean, this is why we are depersonalized. We have forgotten what it means to be a human being. Now, you take all the male characteristics and you're going to see that unfortunately, they've been tragically affected by original sin. You know, this has been beautifully said by Edith Stein, 
you know, now Saint Edith Stein, who gave a talk in Salzburg in 1930, in which he compares men and women. And I do believe her analysis is very beautiful and very, very valid. You know, when she says women are much more interested in person than in impersonal things. And she's right. You know, I have a passionate interest in other persons. I know to know about their lives, about their problems, about their sufferings, about their concerns. The danger of men today is they're in love with machines, something which is totally incomprehensible to me because I hit them and they hit me. <laughs> I mean, it's a reciprocal hatred. There's absolutely no doubt about the fact, you know, machines, of course, are appealing because, you know, they don't, you know, human beings are complex. Machines are very simple if you know how to work them. And if you don't, I feel sorry for you, just as I feel sorry for myself. You know, if you don't know it, you don't know it. But I mean, the case of machines, they're impersonal, they have no soul. You know, I have the sort of crazy idea that suppose you take a group of men and women and they stand in front of a room. The door is closed and they don't know what is inside. And then all of a sudden the doors are open. And there are only two things in the room. On the one hand, you have a baby in a cradle. And on the other side, you have a brand new computer. What's going to happen? A woman is going to rush to the baby and is delighted when the baby is cooing. And the men are going to, oh, that's a baby, but they run to the computer and hook on the computer for the next three hours. <laughs> you know, they're married to the computer. You know, this is a very serious and grave deformation. We live in a world of machines. Now, Edith Stein has seen women are made. Now, this is why I hate feminism. And I hate feminism because I'm so convinced that it is a privilege to be a woman. You know, femininity is something which we desperately need. A few years ago, a converted Jewish writer, whose name escapes me right now, wrote a book called The Flight from Women, meaning to say that today the great temptation of women is to forget the beauty of their mission, the incredible, unique beauty of their mission, which is maternity because I'm absolutely convinced that every woman is meant to be a woman, whether married or unmarried. Because, I mean, if you have no children of your own, you can adopt a child, you can take care of someone who is sick. You can be, you know, as a matter of fact, you can be a mother to a grown-up man who is very wounded and desperately needs help. That happens too. I mean, in other words, this is something which is so inscribed in the female soul you know, to give selfless love. According to Edith Stein, and she is right, we have much more interest in the concrete than in the abstract. The greatness of men is that they can abstract. The weakness of men is that sometimes they fly into abstractions and totally lose end of the concrete. You know, this is when Chesterton says that every man needs a woman, you know, because when he wakes up, he says, then otherwise he has to pull him back on earth. I mean, to make sure that he doesn't look his mind completely into abstract theories. 
She's perfectly right to say that we are much more concerned about whatever is living than non-living. And I mean, this is why I'm worried about the world in which we live, because for some diabolical reason, and once again you have Satan repeating what he said to Eve, why can't you? Why can't women be like men? Why can't they do that? Of course they can. But the question is whether it is a mission. You know, women are disgustingly efficient. You know, if you want to, to come back, I and mean, you come back from Europe and you want to show your, uh, your luggage, don't go to a woman, for goodness sake. She's going to open it and look at every single piece to make sure that you didn't get it abroad and you didn't declare it. Men are lazy. It is one of the... They're definitely easy. Let's do it, and as far as the faster, better. So I simply say, you know, Chesterton says, women work in offices as if they had a sort of devotion to, their, to the invisible chief of the company, as if it were some sort of god. And he says, this is why they do office work so well, and this is why they should not do it. Because there are certain things we should not take that seriously. You know, it simply means, you know, all these sort of practical and technical things in the society in which we live. Now the question is, is there a solution? My new book tries to enter the fact that there is a solution. And the solution is found to be found in the incarnation. You know, once again, you read the gospel so many times, but never, never can you do just justice to the amazing chapter of St. Luke in which it tells us that the angel Gabriel appeared to a young woman, a virgin, offering her to become the mother of the Savior. And she's awed and surprised and amazed. How can that be? And no, not man. Can you imagine a more delicate way of expressing the fact that she had not lived with a man. Today, and I don't dare tell you what the vocabulary will be, the very same thing would be said in such coarse term that it makes your stomach turn. Very same thing, but different words. Beware of the words that you are using, because the words that you are using betray your attitude towards the object that you are speaking of. You know, when I go to church, and there's a priest who refers to God and says, the nice guy upstairs, I could shed tears because I've read St. Teresa of Avila. And St. Teresa of Avila speaks of God, your majesty. She knows that the angels, as it's said explicitly in the Bible, stand in front of God, trembling with reverence, and say, Sanctus, Sanctus, Sanctus. And all of a sudden, you know, the nice guy upstairs. The word guy is not particularly refined anyway, but I mean, that's another story. But I mean, just to show to you that we have lost sense for hierarchy. We have lost sense for reverence. And there is this young girl who accepts to become the mother of God when she's guaranteed that she's going to keep her virginity. And then what does she say? I'm the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done to me. Now, this is something that I've meditated on many times. Done to me. She's not creative. She's receptive. And receptive, receptivity is the way to God. You're not master. We are servants. 
and we should get for help. Now, the first thing that we need to do is to pray. You know, because as I said, I'm so terribly concerned about the tragic situation in which we are living today in this fight, in this war between men and women, which obviously is going to lead to all sorts of horrors and abuses. Now, in Mary, we find the solution. You know, the perfect creature who knows that to say yes to God is the way to peace and to harmony. And on top of it, she conceives a male child. The union between the union between Mary and Jesus is something so unbelievably. He's God. She's only a creature. But nevertheless, she is his mother. And she accompanies him throughout his career. She is at the foot of the cross. She stands and she suffers whatever he has suffered, saying, you know, no, if we truly follow me and follow what I'm teaching you, men and women can be reconciled. And with God's grace and prayer, you know, once again, you can truly say, what a blessing that God has made this divine invention, man and woman. Thank you. Well, you know, every question is welcome, but I cannot promise that I can answer it. Um, I was just wondering what you do with the problem of the exception, because it seems like some women are more abstract than some men, or it seems like how do you avoid stereotypes is basically what I'm asking. How do you avoid stereotyping men and women? Well, I mean, simply they happen to be different. You know, hard as you try you just realize that the difference between them is not only biological, it is also psychological, it is also intellectual, it is also spiritual, they're complementary. You know, in order to understand the beauty of homo, you've got to understand that all these characteristics have to be united. You know, that plainly, look, I taught for so many years, I had both men and women, and I can guarantee that the intellectual structure is simply different. The things that they respond to, their psychology, their, their way of looking at things, it's just different, and each one can enrich the other one. You see, the mistake is to believe that you have it all. Every man needs to be enriched by a female. No, it can be, I mean, in the case of priests, for example, they have the Holy Virgin. And I mean, in my experience, the holiest priests are those who have a profound devotion to the Holy Virgin. And complementary, don't tell me that men and women are identical because it's simply not true. No psychologist will acknowledge it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Von Hillebrand. I want to just commend you on the exhortation to us all about the biblical and marvelous way in which God has created us. And I think it's been so lost for so long. And I thank you for exhorting us all in that beautiful gift of God. Well, please give some credit to my husband. I'm only yes, the woman. Yes, indeed. <laughs> he was the man who inspired me. 
you know, I can truly see every single talk that I've given, every single book I've written, every single class that I've given has been inspired by him. And so you truly, you know, this is why I'm so grateful to John Henry that he's starting the Legacy Project so that all of you can get to know uh, the contributions that he has made. Thank you. Inspiration to us all. Thank you very much.